name is Gerald Gangram. I strive to share the servant leader ethos that I hone from the streets of New York City to the skies of Afghanistan. Sharing my life's lessons is my second service after an exciting military career. An Apache pilot, I finished my time in the Army as a major and have common experience from operations during freedom in Afghanistan. I'm a keynote speaker, armored stories from combat, childhood, my soldiers, cockpit stories, diversity and inclusion stories, many lessons that captivate and ignite audiences. I precisely target messages to create dynamic conversations lasting well past any Q&A session. And I'm glad to be here with Ed and you're listening to From the Heart. This From the Heart podcast is presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting. The three most challenging transitions owners face, namely scale, sale and succession, can often result in costly and confusing journeys. But the good news is it doesn't need to be that way. At Orange Kiwi, we help our clients succeed where others have failed by coming alongside them to help them navigate the challenges others simply aren't able to. We understand how to help you avoid that costly and confusing journey that comes with realizing the results that you really want. Visit our website today at orangekiwillc.com and use the code HLG2021 to book a complimentary 30-minute consultation and find out for yourself how we can help you gain greater clarity, confidence, and control while experiencing less stress and more satisfaction. Gerald, thank you so much. It's such an honor to get a chance to meet you and to dive into your background and history. Just just what you've accomplished in your life makes me very emotional. First and foremost, anybody that puts a uniform on and defends our country is my hero. So thank you. I uh, appreciate from, that, Ed. Thank from, you very From much. my heart and from the heart of my listeners and, and everyone, I can honestly say that I'm tremendously grateful for for the life you live and the experiences and, and the service that you give to our, not just have given, but do give to our country. So I love how you introduce yourself as from the, the streets of New York City to the air above or the skies of Afghanistan. So I think I just got the title. <laughs> we were talking before we recorded, what are we going to call this episode? Well, I think we just got it. But uh, so let's start with those. Uh, well, let's start with the skies of Afghanistan for a moment. How does one become, first of all, describe over your shoulder for those that are watching on YouTube and people are listening as well, I get it. But if you are get it, if you are watching, there's a painting over your right shoulder of the Apache helicopter. It looked like a photo, but you told me before we came on the air that it's actually a painting given to you by one of your soldiers. Can you tell the story maybe of that soldier, but more importantly, dive into the story of the Apache helicopter and how does one become yeah. an Apache helicopter pilot? Okay, awesome. Yeah, I, I love talking about it because everyone sees them. They're like, oh, that's awesome. Great yeah. picture. And it's like, actually, it's a pencil drawing that one of my soldiers did. It's unreal. Uh, Chief Warren Officer Murray Jones. He was in my unit. He's, he's amazing. I kept telling him I really should just fire him so that he can go and have a different job. doing. Go this do the one. career he was meant to be, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he's finally selling them online. So if you look up Murray Jones, you can probably find he, he makes prints of them now. And that's really what he should. But he would do these as um, going away gifts for some of the soldiers and officers that he served with. And um, I, I really just always appreciate his work. But the Apache is an amazing aircraft. It's the most advanced helicopter in the world. This aircraft, if I was in anything else, I probably wouldn't be around. But this is an aircraft that's armed with 30 millimeter rockets, Hellfire missiles that can reach out and touch something from eight kilometers away. It's an immense machine that is just, if you think it's hard enough to like talk and drive at the same time when you're on the yeah, phone or something, imagine. imagine talking on five radios while flying, shooting, you're texting on like on two different things. It's it's amazing. It's very, it's a task saturated nightmare, 
but there's nothing like it in the world. I, I really did appreciate everything with it. Um, I maybe didn't appreciate it enough look, looking back on it. Um, there's always something I wish I could have taken advantage of more. Um, but I was, I was paid to fly that for a good amount of my career. And I loved every moment of that for sure. Yeah. Rarely do we recognize the value of the lessons that we're getting while we were getting them. Most of the education comes after the fact, even in college. I think we don't really realize when we're in school and you have a lot of college experience. We'll get into some of that. Now, my understanding is from what I've researched, it's a two seater with the, the gunner in the front and you're kind of up elevated behind sitting as the pilot. Is that accurate? So yeah. So, you that, so you, no room for passengers, two pilots yeah. in it. You can fly okay. or shoot from either crew station and you work yeah. together as a team to make sure that you keep this aircraft in the air and you do the mission that you have to do with whatever on the ground. And to do that, both pilots have to work together because you can't, other aircraft, you're sitting right next to each other, like you're driving a car and you can reach out and touch the other person hit them if they're doing something wrong. You see what they're doing. In the Apache, I can't see what the other person's doing and they can't see what I'm doing, depending on what seats we're in. Because And we can't even touch each other. We can't slide anything back and forth. There, there was a message we wanted to pass because there's actually ballistic shielding between us. Yeah. Because if that way, if one of us gets taken out by some type of rocket, the other one can be still, still protected in their compartment. This is an aircraft that's designed to get shot at. Wow. If you need one of something on the aircraft, you have two of them. If you really need one, you might have three of those on the aircraft. And it's on the right side of the aircraft, you have the same things on the left side. So that the right side gets taken off, you have redundancies on the left. There's no conversation about where the pilots fit into this equation when you're <laughs> yeah. in this aircraft in sections. Right. But it, it really is impressive with how this thing is designed to take a hit. So probably not the first time you've been asked this question. And I hate to ask redundant questions, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Take, I'm a big analogy or metaphor guy. I think that's part of my leadership training and background and just... I study leadership. I just, I, I love to read books about leaders and so forth, but I love the metaphor of, you know, the athletic field to leadership or the, you know, whatever the field is. Take me back to this helicopter for a moment. And the way you just described the relationship between you and the co-pilot, how would you be, how would you make that analogous to leadership in a, in corporate America, for example, two people who have very similar yet independent roles and maybe can't see what the other one's doing on a day-to-day -day basis. How would you use that? Because I'm guessing you've gone there before. So yeah, pretty I'll, easy stretch. I'll tell you, um, stay out of each other's cockpits to a certain extent or you'll hit a mountain. Um, I've hit a mountain. Uh, me and my, I was in the front seat in this, in this uh, portion and someone else was in the back seat. I was working on stuff inside of the aircraft, really directing fires on a certain thing. And he was in charge of flying the aircraft. Um, the pilot um, while I was acting as the co-pilot gunner. His job was to fly. My job was to shoot. Hmm. He got sucked into the aircraft trying to um, watch what I was doing and even maybe coach me along through it while I was a young pilot. And he wasn't keeping track of where he was flying. And so all of a sudden we hear altitude low. And that's not a good thing when you think mm. you're about a thousand feet in the air. Yeah. We hit the mountain. Thankfully we bounced off of it. But this is the equivalent of making sure that you need to understand and trust those people having their different jobs in whatever sector that they're going through. Whoever's in charge of your HR team or marketing, whatever it is, you need to trust that they'll get that job done so you can focus on yours. Because if you're crossing paths too much and you're trying to get into their cockpit, you're going to hit a mountain. And hopefully your business is strong enough as an Apache to bounce off of it, but that's not always the case. So 
that's the advice that I give people with that analogy. No, and I love that. And and the two are necessary. You you don't go up solo on that thing either, because you know you each have a role to to, to fly it and to protect and so forth. That that that's just man. I could just I could live for an hour in the conversation about the Apache helicopter. I'm so fascinated by it and flying machines in general. I still don't understand how SUVs fly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> SUVs, but. Uh, so, okay, so leadership is where you live, work, breathe. You grew up in the streets of Queens, New York, single mom, you know, crime-riddled neighborhood, not, not where Ed Hart grew up. You know, I told you I grew up in, you know, middle-class, white, Orange County, California, mm-hmm. you know, with mom and dad. And, you know, it was, the, it was the leave it to beaver home. Dad went off to work. Mom made the pie and the dinner and, and took care of the kids and looked nice for dad when, she got home, when he got home. She went on to a great career later on after the kids were raised. But so how does one, so we talk about from the streets of New York City to the skies of Afghanistan. We started on the skies. Let's go back to the streets and then maybe weave our way back up to the skies again as yeah. we wrap later on. Talk about that upbringing. And so I don't understand the paradigm of growing up on the streets because I didn't, but I'm always just absolutely mesmerized and impressed and inspired by most of the successful people I have read about and seen, CEOs, military leaders like yourself and so forth, have come from that background. What is it that you learned, you think, from what you know, that maybe I didn't or others listening today might not have learned because of your upbringing? Oh, man. Ed, Ed there's a couple places to go with this. Um, but the first place I'll go is that I didn't get, I didn't get to where I am today on my own. And it's the same story that other people get, but it's maybe harder in some cases for someone else in, in my position to see it because there's this dynamic that we we lie to people almost and we tell them, you keep working hard, you keep working hard and you can get out of whatever situation you're in. And that's not completely true. Hmm. If you're lucky, maybe, but you need other people in your life to help get you out of there. I didn't even know what getting out was. Yeah. I was so tunnel visioned when I thought about you know what my goal right now when I'm getting to high school and stuff is to get strong for prison. I figured I was going to end up in prison. So I might as well just go to gym and bulk up for prison. I didn't think that there was another choice. It's not like I was doing these negative things. I wasn't with the gangs or anything else like that. That wasn't my life, but I just thought, Oh, this is just kind of the environment I live in. That's what's going to end up happening. That was the predestination in my mind. My biological father would tell my mom that she was worthless when he left and would say that I wouldn't amount to anything because of, her not having an education or anything else like that. And that stuck with me. Yeah. And instead I needed, in this case, other teachers, high school teachers that saw something else in me. And that, in this case, it was a propensity for leadership where I accidentally got put in their course hmm. and I had, I tried to get out of it. This was a leadership course in a junior reserve officer training course. And it was a leadership course on becoming a better citizen. What the hell do I need to become a better citizen for? I need to get to gym, I'll be right? In prison. Yeah, I don't need to. Yeah, be I, like, what, like what the hell is that? So yeah. I'm trying to get out of this, and they refuse to let me out of this. I tried to drop the course three times, and between a start first class bats, a master sergeant Badia, and a first sergeant Gogarty, these teachers in high school didn't give up on me. They saw this and they kept with me. So much that by the time I got it out of my head that, okay, I don't have to be in prison. I'll figure something else out. I was still thinking, oh, again, small scope, that narrow view that I had, I'm going to go and work at a McDonald's or something. And, and I, I, can, I can maybe be a manager there one day. And that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm going to use my leadership for. I wasn't even thinking about college. When First Sergeant asked me what I was going to do for college, 
I said, I'm not applying to college. I can't afford application fees. What am right. I going to do at college? Yeah. And then he told me one school that didn't have an application fee, and that was West Point. It was the only school I applied to that year. Hmm. And because of September 11th, it was the hardest school in the world to get into. And thankfully, I was able to get in. Yeah. But I would not have got there on my own. Yeah, I had some inclination and understanding what the military was, but I didn't think that I could do that yet until he really had that heart to heart with me. So mentors are important. We yeah, don't absolutely. do anything by ourselves. Even now, I still have mentors that are guiding me to even where I got to today, right in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, nothing is by ourselves. So before we get into those, a little, I want to dive a little more into a couple of the teachers and the names you talked about. Talk to me about your mom. This was your first real role model. My mom is the first example I have of a servant leader. Hmm. Awesome. And to me, a servant leader is someone that will... They show up, they're present, and they elevate whatever group they're serving, whatever group they are given to lead. Um, and again, it can be as a parent, but she was willing to sacrifice, and that's what she showed me. Um, there are a lot of times where I remember her just like not, not, not being hungry, right? Um, like I remember that. I remember we would go to school to eat breakfast and lunch. And then she found out that summer school was a thing. And she actually enrolled me in summer school, even though my grades um, were good. She had me enroll in summer school. And I remember her dropping me off at breakfast sometimes and trying to tell me to grab an extra thing that so that she could eat sometimes whenever she wouldn't get caught eat, eating. Not that she was taking away from me ever. Um, but I still remember those moments where like, even when it happened and I brought something home, like for food, and she was like, no, you have to eat that. And I, and I, and I know that she needed it also, but again, those, those small things add up in, in such a, in such a way. And, and that's just one example of, of many, she worked as hard as she could to make things work, make sure we had whatever we need. Um, and when you're seeing someone like that, it's hard to ask for anything. Yeah. Um, it's not that my, I knew that it was very limited what my mom could financially give me. Um, but she, she wanted what was best for me and it made it where I, if I needed something for school or anything else, I didn't want to ask for it because I knew she was already doing as much as she could. Um, and if it was, I knew it was going to be, Hey, I'm, you need a pencil. I had one at work and I'm bringing it to you. I should take office supplies to, to do what, what needed to be done. And, but that was my pencil. I could not lose that pencil. Exactly. Um, like I had one pencil sometimes <laughs> going through school. Sometimes I had one pencil and one pen or whatever it was. Like I had, I valued those even more because I knew, oh, my mom might get in trouble if, if I, if I lose this, because she might have to get another one. And then yeah, she well, won't have they one they might not notice one, but if they start noticing pencils are disappearing. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, so it was, it was just stuff like that. I remember like, sometimes it would be like trash, like paper that was like if I needed loose leaf it was like oh they didn't use the back of these sheets at the office and I had that for scrap paper on things um they used to have these like this paper with the perforations on the side that fed through these huge uh printers and had the like matrix oh, printer yeah yeah exactly, yep. I, I had that for homework um and and paper because like her office had like extra of that so th that was the stuff I had for school supplies <laughs> but she without a doubt for me and i only had one sister at the time one younger sister i now have uh have two others so three all together um she there was no request that she was not going to try to make so you you, you never want to disappoint a servant leader that really has your best interest in heart I've, I've seen that in my own life as i reflected later um with how some of my soldiers were with me and that started with her without a doubt 
she probably asked you to grab that extra food for her, knowing that it was really going to be for you. And you wouldn't grab it if you knew it was for you because. Yeah. yeah because she, she taught you a lot of lessons there. Yeah. Cause she also, it was also a lesson of don't take more than you need. Right. There's, there is something with, with being greedy mm -hmm. and being just justice of things. Yeah. And she was, she was very much about the integrity um, with things, even if it was taking like different things. It was like, this is a used pencil. That's, that's almost done. No one was going to miss this. Right. Like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, like there was still a, a method to it. It wasn't, there wasn't stealing anything. It was just, we're recycling some, sure. something else. And it wasn't like twisting it. It was very much an honor um, to it. And I, uh, there should such character within her with, without a doubt. So you're surrounded by by women. You've got sisters. You've got a mom. Tell me your first male role model. When when I say that, where do you go? Uh, first Sergeant Richard Gogarty, nice. that man that was that father figure to me that got me, that really inspired me to go to West Point. He helped me go to my appointments and everything. Even I told you about I, I couldn't afford to go to go to apply to college. Even when it came to mailing in the application, he gave me. $20 bill to send something return receipt, $16 and 16 cents is what mm -hmm. I spent on that post. And I still remember that because I'd never spent that much on posts. I was like, <laughs> yeah. sure. We don't just have to put a stamp or two on this. And, yeah. and that's and food for a, a week, spot. right? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was so much to spend on postage, but he, he, this is a guy that he dropped me off at, at West point, And then he found out that he had cancer the next day mm. and he didn't tell me because he knew that I would try and run over and be with him. I'd leave West Point and he wasn't gonna let that happen. He didn't wanna make his burden mine. He wouldn't tell me for two years that he was diagnosed with cancer and at one point given six months to live. He didn't want that on my conscience at all. He wanted me to just be focused on what I was doing. And, he, and then even when he told me two years later, he didn't say, hey, two years ago, I got cancer. He's like, oh, by the way, I have cancer. It wouldn't yeah, like be like 10 years. You're like, I just found out, right? Yeah. It wouldn't be until like another 10 years where I eventually found out that it was that he kept it from me for so long. And it's only because I was interviewing him for something else. And he was like, oh, well, if you really want to know something, don't share your burdens and stuff. Like, like it's sometimes okay to keep um, some things from people. Like the whole protecting them can have merit to it when you're doing it for the right reasons as a, as a servant leader. So yeah. again, awesome, man. Okay, so you keep dropping the term servant leader, and I've dropped it too. Let's define it. Gerald's definition of servant leadership. Yes, so someone, a leader is someone that motivates someone to accomplish the mission, especially something that they may not otherwise want to do. A servant leader will add that element of sacrifice to it. They're all about raising up the group, not just for themselves or their personal gain, that's not it at all. It's all about just elevating the group. No matter where this group wants to go in the end, even if they decide to leave whatever organization, there's still going to be better people at the end of the day. You should go into an organization, leave it better than you found it. That's what a servant leader does. They leave people better than they found. Them. And that's how, that's my concise definition of, yeah. again, that sacrifice, sacrificial leader. I'm willing to take the round so that you can elevate yourself. I love that. That's such a great definition. I really like that sacrifice component of it too. And, you know, we've all heard the definition of sacrifice is giving up something good in return for something better. And when we're sacrificing and giving of ourselves, we really, even if all we're getting is just the, the satisfaction of seeing 
the results in the other person that not even, I mean, that's huge. I don't mean that. Like that's nothing. That's, that's massive. Yeah. So no, I think that's fantastic. What would you tell the young man growing up in Queens today? Not you. I mean, yeah, if you can go back and tell yourself the lesson and we can play that game and I love that, but you see a young kid on the streets right now that is bulking up for prison, as you put it. I mean, I'm just, if I don't cry in the next five minutes, I'm going to at some point when I listen to this interview again, because, you know, just I'm so impressed with, and this isn't meant to do anything other than just share my heart with you, that I'm impressed with where you've come from and what you've accomplished and what you're doing with your life. So what advice or mentorship or guidance would you give that, you know, 10 year old kid on the streets in Queens today? Ed, that's, that's a great question. Um, there, there isn't enough that I can do for that individual, honestly. Um, they need someone to grab them the way that first sergeant grabbed me. And I hope that they can find that person. And I would, I would tell them to look for those people that can be role models. Again, teachers are, I have such tremendous respect for teachers and what they do and the lives that they can change. But beyond that, I would let them know they don't know what they can do yet. I had no idea I was going to do any of the things that I'm doing right now. Um, having an audience like this with, with your, your followers, I'd like, this is, this is an honor and a privilege to me. And I would tell them they're in a great position. I would tell them that they're going to forge forward. They're going to the bad seasons in our life are just that they're seasons. And we can go through these hot points and we can melt. We can go through this fire and we can absolutely melt. Sure. It happens. Or you can come out more resilient with it. You can go through that fire. You can get heated up like that steel, but then you can get molded. Yeah. And leaders aren't made, they aren't born, they're forged. Hmm. Leaders go through that fire and they become more resilient for it. They become sharper molded swords out of it. And those are the people you want leading you. The people that have gone through that experience that can now, they have such a greater empathy for things, greater perspective for things. Challenges are completely different for them and how they view risk and rewards. And that's what I would say. You're in a, you're in a great place. This is a season that will pass if you let it, if you come out re more resilient through the fire and allow yourself to forge forward. I don't usually take notes when I'm interviewing someone on the podcast, but I'm writing a lot of stuff down today. <laughs> Leaders are forged is just, that is going to ingrain in me forever now because I teach a leadership class to MBA students at uh, University of California at Riverside part-time. And uh, one of the discussions the first night is talk about the difference between leadership and management. And they always talk about, and then we have the comment, well, are leaders born or, you know, do you learn how to become a leader? And I've never heard anybody until right now say they're forged. And uh, I hope you're okay, but I'm stealing that one. Man. That's my number two pencil right, that I'm taking from you. <laughs> All right, let, let's go with it. Hell, I'll come to your MBA class. Man. Yeah, right on, man. Yeah, whether, whether we're doing Zoom or whether it's in person. <laughs> Think about the last time you bought a gift for a friend or family member. The better you know them, the easier it was to get them something memorable, right? Well, it's the same for brands that want to deliver memorable customer experiences. The better they know their customers, the more likely they are to establish strong relationships, exceed expectations, and build loyalty. At McKenzie, that's what we do. We empower brands to understand and connect with the person behind the purchase, so their customer experiences are meaningful, unique, and truly valuable. Learn more at mckenziecorp.com. Tell us a story about a young soldier that you came across 
that you saw grow more than anyone else and what was it about that person or what were the experiences that made that person grow oh man yeah i know go through the rolodex right i'm sure there's a few you kind of narrowed it down for me by saying young soldier okay i was always the youngest in my units um and it's weird so i was the leader but i was always the youngest except that doesn't, for that doesn't surprise me or anybody <laughs> the last 20 minutes who's gotten to know you just so you know yeah it's um there was one though that was younger than me a private first class winston jimmy miroy we called him jimmy um he was the only one that was younger than me and this is when i was a platoon leader all the rest of my guys were sometimes 10 20 years older than me it depended on the situation sometimes only a few years but jimmy was maybe 18 and this was an aircraft mechanic working on the apache that was the only private we actually had he was that young and he was always fired up and i remember talking to him about land navigation and leadership things that had nothing to do with being an aircraft mechanic but he loved it and i i actually told him about how he could even go to west point um the propensity for him to do that and he he kept seeing himself as oh i'm the lowest ranking person in this platoon right now and i can be the highest ranking person after i graduate and go to college and all this stuff and he 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 really had all these large aspirations um such such a a beautiful soul to him uh regretfully um i lost that soldier hmm. um wow i uh sorry man jimmy was great and when i lost jimmy um we had to bring him home his his parents requested me to bring him home and i did and when i did that sorry Ed. no i apologize man I... um when I, when i brought jimmy home um, i'm talking to his family about him and his i, I get with his mom and dad i was like why did why did you request me like there, there are other soldiers that were closer to him why me and they said because when he would write or call home he would tell us these stories about the land navigation and leadership and West Point and stuff. And he said he wanted to be like you. Wow. And we wanted to see how our son would turn out by seat by meeting you. And that's why we wanted to meet you. And it was such a sad moment. It was a horrible tragedy. But I when I take myself out of the circumstance that brought me to that and i think about what they said i'm deeply humbled by it i wasn't trying to be that person and that goes back to those ripple effects that you were talking about earlier of you don't know sometimes and you're not going to see the impact you're having on people's lives right most of the time you're not i was very fortunate to see it there and so i try and be more deliberate with my moments with people because you don't know how what they're going to take away from every interaction and how that can change their lives forever put them on a different path for their life or maybe for that day yeah. but either way this is going to be consequential and that's jimmy's my answer to that you know i'm not a star wars guy at all but i one of the things i keep hearing yoda quoted is sorry i'm you know just a puddle over here now too hearing your story 
is there's no try, only do. Leaders can't try to become leaders. It just happens. Do or do not. There is no try. There is no try. There you go. Sorry. You, you see, like I said, you, I, 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 I even misquoted Yoda. That's how bad I am. So <laughs> a term that comes up for me, and I wrote this down, and I want to, it's not in my notes, but it is now. I'm going there now. When I say the phrase, the privilege of leadership, what's the first thing that comes up for you? You just, for those that are just listening, he just looked up. I can tell that hit you. And what, what, when you hear the privilege of leadership, where do you go? The any time you get as a leader, you are blessed to be a leader. If you are a leader, whether it was you got stuck being a leader, appointed being a leader, elected being a leader, it's a privilege to lead. And you only have that privilege for so long, no matter what, with that group of people. Take every opportunity to do as much as you can for them. Make them the best that you can be and rewards will come to them three times over if you set them up right. And you can be proud of that when you leave them. It, so many people these days are maybe focused on what their next job is going to be from a leadership position or I hate when I hate, I want to hear stepping stone. Yeah. Um, no, get out, get out of that. Stop, especially with some politicians where they're like, oh, well, I'm doing this to get to this. No, 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 stop. Yeah. Stop We're using your time campaigning or anything else like that. Just be in the moment and serve your people. Mm -hmm. yeah. Be present. <laughs> so I talked to athletes a lot, uh, retired athletes. I worked in sports a little bit and I've talked to a lot of athletes then and now. And I ask them, what do you miss most about it? And oftentimes they go, oh, the camaraderie in the locker room with the guys, the road trips and stuff. And I'm sure there was those down moments when you're not flying the helicopter and you're not in battle and in combat. That's, you know, a lot of laughter and a lot of fun and cold beers with the guys and stuff that you probably don't want to talk about. But when you think about the whole experience, you're a retired army major. That means you're not doing it anymore. So when you look back about, you know, that time, first first thing that comes up for you that you that you just miss the most or that you just hearken back to more often than not oh it's definitely camaraderie yeah. without a doubt um yeah i miss flying but when i think about what i miss in the army most it's it's my soldiers mm -hmm. it was that whether and and it's not just the soldiers that i had under me it was my peers it was my supervisors um those bosses that i had that were most of the time awesome i was i was really fortunate again everyone has some some bad apples that they have to work with above them and that kind of makes you stronger in other ways. But I had a lot of really good, especially direct supervisors. And I'm very thankful for that. And, but that bond you have with your soldiers, with your, the people that you're leading, because I've, I've also had it with people that weren't soldiers. Yeah. And it's, it's tremendous. Um, I've had times in my life where they, they came to bat for me with things. I remember when I was uh, trying to study for my GMAT uh, to go to business school. And they knew I hadn't been studying because I'm commander of this company. It's going around the clock. I have no time to study. Eventually, I was like, hey, I'm just going to take a day to study. Hmm. I only had two weeks to study for this test. That wasn't happening with things. I was like, all right, I'm going to take a day to study. Yeah. And then I'm taking the test. And they're like, okay, cool. And they're like, hey, when are you, when are you going to be um, studying? Okay, got it. And then they show up, right? Just to distract me at my house. Because they're course. like, you yeah. don't need to do this, sir. Yeah. You're fine. I got the pizza. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. They're like, no, you, you, no, go back to studying. And yeah. we're just going to go in your backyard and chill out or something. It's like, what, what's going on here? Um, but you can't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. They, were, they were really good at doing that. And there, there are so many memories I, I have with them. Because uh, especially my when I was in command, I was in charge of 136 people. Ed. And this group of people and then 
by incident, their families as well. All of them were awesome legends in this, the Apache community. Hmm. And these guys were my immediate supervisors that I had to help me run this company. I call them my administration. They were my cabinet. And it was about 13 or 16 of them, depending on which term I was in, if it was early on or later. And these guys, I took all my authority and put it on them. I told them, hey, you guys run the company. You come to me when you need big decisions done. And we got really close. It was a very tight-knit community. We would, every weekend, I would be over by someone else's house or have them over so that we could just get to know each other better. So I would understand all the things they were going through, what they wanted in life, and I could know how to better serve them. Um, and yeah, I was, I was their boss. I was the commander. There was a line that wasn't crossed, but I was also, we were friends too, Mm -hmm. um, as professional of friends as we could be, but in that environment where you're still putting your life in each other's hands with different things, it's hard not to be that close, Yeah, but it doesn't mean it can't happen in an organization where it's not always life and death. It's real easy to still take an interest in the other person. And then you loyalty takes on a whole different meaning afterwards it's not serving the company as much as sometimes it becomes serving each other yeah i had one guy mr jason mccormick that would always oh man i did it again (laughs) i I know i'm thinking about another soldier but jason would (laughs) would tell me sir i hate disappointing you he's 10 years older than me maybe 13. And he's saying, I hate disappointing you, sir, because it's like letting my father down. Why can't you just yell at me for doing this wrong? And he knew that wasn't my way. It was, it was more of just a, Hey, we'll get through this together kind of thing. Yeah. I I could be stern and disciplined when I needed to get that out of me, but it was not a berating, belittling. It wasn't that, that kind of army leader for me. It was we're a team. Your job is to keep these guys alive. My you know? job. Well, I mean, I don't mean. To, I mean you're, you're, you're right. That to some extent, my job is to fight and win the nation's wars as an yeah, army officer. Yeah. And to do that, I lead America's sons and daughters. Yeah. That's the job. And I hope that I'm doing it in a manner where we all can come home. Yeah. Um, I definitely want to do right by them. It, really, my job is to take care of them. Yeah. Yes, I am in charge of their lives without a doubt. Yeah. And they understood that but they were also responsible for mine. And they, right. they knew that they, they did things to safeguard and protect me as well. Um, and that, that's where it went above and beyond. It wasn't always just, I had to come up with the plans. These were very smart. They, they had, they spent more time in the army than I did in almost all circumstances. So the experience was tremendous. And I learned how to respect that experience and just it almost sounds bad, but leverage it. I don't have to be the one to come up with all the bright ideas. Hey, what bright ideas do you have? Cool. Yeah, we got a team. And, and it became, hey, we're using Jason's idea for this. Right. I didn't even need the credit for it. It was almost better if it came from Jason because everyone was like, oh, Jason, we trust. This commander's kind of new. Yeah, and he's yeah, kind of young. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. But Jason, oh, some Jason. commanders is like, I'll listen to all of you and then I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. And that, that just, that wasn't how I rolled me and me yeah. and Jason. And even I'm thinking about Uriah Hayes right now. He, we would beat each other over the head with baseball bats in my office. But as soon as the door opened, we were all on the same sheet of music. Yeah. Well, and to you know what? I think whatever that, sheet of music I wanted to play. Right. But it was definitely influenced by, by all of them. Yeah. I think what bonds people together, whether it's families or baseball teams or in the military is shared experience. 
we're going through this together. And you can be the leader and I can be the follower or vice versa, or we can be on different teams. But if we're sharing this experience, I look at, again, I go back to athletes a lot. I'm, I'm blown away at how guys that played major league baseball on different teams are just bonded. Now they weren't on the same team. They were going at each other, but they shared that experience. I look at uh, family members that have been through crises. We've, you know, we're, I hope, knock on wood, at the, sort of towards the tail end of this massive worldwide pandemic and crisis that we're all facing. And I like to use the analogy that we're going through different experiences together. Or we're yes. going through the same experience, but we're going through it differently. And, um, you know, the stories that are coming out of this right now, I think are going to be those, you know, I, I talk about the phoenix out of the ashes, like we talked about you early on before we hit record. And that's, you know, growing up in the streets of Queens and now where you are today and where you've gone. And I look at these companies and these individuals that have just been hemorrhaging because of COVID. Loss of life, loss of job, loss of company, you know, family members, et cetera. Yeah. And the, the survival of those people are going to be the stories that we talk about for generations. Absolutely. And I think that's the story of our country, the survival of our country. We've been up against it. You know, not many of us that can hear my voice right now have crashed into a mountain. Figuratively, we all have. Every single person who can hear my voice has crashed into a mountain in their life, figuratively speaking. You've done it literally and figuratively. Yeah. What's it like when you, here I go again, man. What's it like when you think you're about to die doing what you are called to do and then surviving? What what lessons you get in that moment? And now looking back years later, obviously they're similar but different. What lessons come up for you in the moment and then after when you think this is it? Let me tell you a story, Ed. When I was deployed in Afghanistan in 2012, we were flying, got a call, troops in contact, 120 enemy coming on this small allied forces, about 20 people, U.S. foreign and another, uh, U.S. Afghanistan and another foreign ally with these 20 people. Obviously, they're overrun. They're calling in Apaches. We're heading over there. I'm squeezing the guts out of this aircraft flying over there. And as we're on our way, I'm thinking, hey, you know, this is a lot of people, but 15, 20 minutes, we're a good crew. We can get this wrapped up. But then I get there, and it's not the wide open desert I'm used to. There's, there's trees. There's foliage, canopies. I can't see the good guys or the bad guys in this fight. It's going to end up taking 10 and a half hours. And as I'm trying to get lower and lower, I'm, I'm shooting rockets at the sides of a mountain, trying to have the ground guys literally walk my rounds onto where the target is. Hey, shift your fire down 500 meters, like adjust to the east by 200 meters, whatever it is. But as I get lower, trying to see if I can pick out anything, I get a call. Gunmetal, watch out. They're shooting at you. Gunmetal is my call sign at that time. And I said, well, if they're shooting at me, are they shooting at you? My front seater is a Mr. Kevin White. And he says, sir, I know what you're thinking. And I agree. Let's do it. What the hell was I thinking? In Afghanistan, they called us the dragon, the Taliban. did, And I knew this day they wanted to slay a dragon more than they wanted to get the guys in the ground. Because when they confirmed that all of the weapons were shooting at me, their small arms, their machine guns, whatever they had, I knew I was the perfect distraction. He said he needed 60 seconds to move, and I gave him 60 seconds to move. 
I put my aircraft low in that same area, slow down our airspeed. He confirmed they were shooting at me. And I said, you got 60 seconds go. And I watched that clock. Wow. And it felt like a long 60 seconds. But in that 60 seconds, me and Kevin weren't thinking, this is it. Yeah, we did tell our wingman beforehand, hey, by the way, you know that if we go down, you're going to put a debt circle of 30 millimeter ammunition around this aircraft to make sure no one gets to us. And if you see them on top of the aircraft, you shoot right at the aircraft. You make sure you take them and us out because we wouldn't be taken alive. Right. But that's not what we were thinking about in this moment. Right. We were being present. We were showing up to the fight. Kevin wasn't doing this because of some glory that he had or anything that he has. He has a family. He has a wife. He has four kids, two twins that were born months before the deployment that he really didn't get a chance to know yet. These girls. Yeah. He's not throwing his life away because he's a hero at some bravado. We're not in those moments thinking about it. We're just doing the job. We didn't know those guys in the ground, just like those sports teams that you mentioned when, when they get together. It's, but we had, we had a connection to them. They were soldiers. They needed help. We were in a position to give them help, and you better believe that's what we were going to do. Servant leaders will show up. That's what Kevin was being at that time when he was saying those um, remarks that we were going to go and do that plan. You show up to that fight, and we're not thinking about what the consequences are in the moment. Yeah, that's for an after action debrief. Yeah, because no, we had to do it again. Yeah. We actually did it twice because it worked yeah. out. <laughs> you had a different life than I have, my friend. You have had a different life than I have. That's for sure. Everyone has a unique and well, glorious yeah. life when you really look at it. Hello, my name is John Royce Lynch, founder and CEO of PCMA Private Client. As a former professional surfer and native of Southern California, I have always enjoyed Wahoo's Fish Tacos. When the pandemic hit, the response by Wahoos was unparalleled, creating the California Love Drop by supporting frontline workers and those in need. On behalf of the PCMA private client community and our amazing team, it is an honor to be able to support this noble effort. To lend a hand and to learn more, please visit californialovedrop.org. What are you most proud of? I mean, I, I could list off the medals and in the bio, I'm certainly going to do that. Um, I get that it's not the medals. I've known you for 45 minutes other than emails over the last several weeks, but um, I get that it's not about that. When you look back at your experience and then I want to, you know, maybe shift a little bit into what you're doing today. When you look back at your military experience and you hang your hat on, on that, just, I can't even imagine you could even put this into a sentence because I, I can tell you what I'm proud of in your life in the 45 minutes I've known you, geez, man. But uh, what do you think of when you just think of, man, that, that really stands out? Was it an experience? Was it lessons learned? The camaraderie we've talked about, the bouncing off mountains and surviving? I mean, literally and figuratively, of course. It was my soldiers. Yeah, the people. I'm, I'm proud of the team I built. My, my command philosophy was threefold. I would empower them. I would give them my intent. And I had a hell of an open door policy that required constant communication for them to walk in. And I, I delve a little deeper into that with things, but that allowed them to run the company without me. And I really do mean that, that I told them, some people feel like when they get to a company that I'm indispensable. I never wanted to be the case. It was actually the exact opposite. I told them, hey, if I go down, you can keep going. 
all of you know how to pick up every piece. You know you're going to assume command and you're going to just pick up that flag. That guidance is going to keep going forward. And I was proud that I was able to have a culture where we did that. I was proud that when I left any organization, it didn't fall apart. It didn't go backwards. It was able to continue that forward momentum. I was proud that my guys didn't need me completely. Yeah, it was good when I was there, um, for sure. But I wasn't, I wasn't the glue that had to hold everything together. I was a glue that worked. And then when I had to leave, they were still able to carry on. And that's what I'm most proud of that. Um, I was able to, it's, it's real easy when you're commander of the largest tech company in the world to be like, oh, this is awesome. It's all about me. I have all these toys that I can play with now. No, I, I'm, I'm glad that I, that I had the experience I had beforehand to stay humble in it. And yeah, I was going to definitely wear that Firebird 6 call sign with pride. And I still do. But in the moment, I still was able to keep it all about my soldiers. And I'm glad for the people that they turned out to be. Yeah, I've heard it said many times, and I agree with this, that one of the greatest responsibilities of a leader is to develop other leaders. And yes. so, yeah, while you're developing leaders who can take over if you're on vacation or if you're gone or whatever, the, the job of developing more leaders and developing those leaders even better never goes away. So, yeah, I, I tell, I, working with family businesses, I'm telling these CEOs and these, these owners who are at the age of retirement, but they just either can't let go. And they say, oh, well, they'll have my funeral and my retirement party on the same day. You know, I, I get that that means you're committed. And you want to keep working, but how cool is it when you can watch someone you've developed lead? Is there a story where you, I, I think so, because I think you've already touched on some of that, but is there another story? Again, leaders tell stories of someone where you, you looked back at, man, the leadership that I've seen this kid grow into has just been inspiring you chief foreign officer jason mccormick jason started off with me he was there at the beginning of my command my command was two years and i made him a platoon leader early on because i saw great potential in him now everyone that i chose to be a platoon leader and, and be part of my cabinet obviously you're a rock star if you're going to go through this yeah but i also had an order of merit list for all of them. I wanted them to know where they ranked with each other. And I told Jason, Hey, you're at the bottom of the list, by the way. Now, granted, this is a list of rock stars, Yeah. but it still bites to hear that you're at the bottom of any yeah. rock stars. And yeah. so he's like, well, sir, what do I need to do? And, and we worked on it. We, Jason would come, he'd use that open door policy and he would sometimes just sit on the couch in my office and watch me type while I would, hmm. I would just, you literally just look at the side of my head while I was working on something knowing that I was still talking to him, but being completely disrespectful by not, never having eye contact. And he learned from it. He wanted to know who the number one, the number two people were, so he could learn from them as well. He didn't just rest on his laurels and he could have done that. And he could have gradually risen up to maybe be a middle platoon leader. No, he rose to be my number one platoon leader very quickly. Hmm. And the scope became, he realized it wasn't just always about even sometimes looking at, again, scope is important, not looking through it, oh, what's just going and protecting his guys? Yeah, that's a big part of it. But even, hey, what's going on to the left and right and right with me within this company that, oh, if something happens to the commander, I might be one of the leaders that has to step up. And he quickly, I mean, very rapidly started growing from this as I, with the things that I did with empowering him to make those decisions and giving him that leeway. And I remember that we, 
we talked often, even after I left command, and he always wished, hey, sir, I, I wish we were able to have deployed together um, so we could have done some things. And he was always thinking about the future of Army aviation. He even was recommending different things of, hey, I'm working with this one leader that I'm mentoring that maybe can take the job you had. Can you talk to her and see if this is a right fit? Maybe put her on the right path. Um, regretfully, uh, two weeks after that conversation where he connected me with that, uh, that Lieutenant uh, Jason um, passed away a few months from his retirement, he, um, he went down in his aircraft. And, but this is a guy that heart of gold, he was, he wasn't just looking out for his platoon anymore. He was thinking about the big army and army aviation and the legacy that he was having within that he was, he had influenced hundreds of soldiers just under me in making future Apache pilots, not to mention what he did with the rest of the army when he was not under my command anymore. So that's what I've seen when you empower these people and you, you give them the ability. Um, they don't just stop when they're with you. They continue to be those types of people going forward. And that's, that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. When you put your fist in the water, you see the ripple, but when you take your fist out, the ripple gets even bigger. And I love that. I love that analogy that, you know, we can have an impact on people even after we're not there, whether we're not physically here on the earth, the impact, certainly I look at my mom who passed four years ago and the impact she'll have on me forever but my dad, who's 94 and my best friend now, I mean, he's here today and, you know, they're both having a massive ripple effect in my life. Great. So how are you using all of these experiences from the streets of Queens to the skies of Afghanistan to these amazing stories and experiences in your life today? Not just the memories, but what are you doing to, to apply that knowledge and that wisdom yeah. today? Uh, thanks for that question, Ed. Um, it was realizing that I'm not done. Even after cool. taking off the uniform, it took a little while, but I realized, you know, I've always been moved to lead and I'm still moved to lead. I still want to be in front of people. Mm -hmm. I want to inspire them. And all of those trials in my life have just been those different points of fire that have continued to forge me and to be an even better leader, I hope. I know I, I still feel I'm more kindled for service. So right now what I'm doing is I'm, Stuff like this. I get to zoom around the world just yeah, exactly. yeah. talking to people about matters that are important to me, talking about leadership lessons, because I believe all of us deserve better leaders. Yeah. And getting to communicate about how extraordinary people are where you're not even realizing some of the things you're doing. It's leadership and heroism doesn't have to come from the seat of an Apache. It can come from a leader just helping that person on the ground do what needs to be done. And that's what it really became for me. I realized I wanted to continue to be that person that was drawing fire. I wanted to continue to be the person that enabled the person on the ground to do their job. And for me, that's, that's the calling of a servant leader. I can't imagine any greater calling than serving at the highest levels of government where my sole responsibility could even be to safeguard all American interests. Um, in public office, I think I can represent the good nature of Americans and not be another out of touch bureaucrat. Mm -hmm. uh, but really, I hope to inspire future administrations where officials don't think about their next term. Mm -hmm. They use that gifted time, that privilege that you mentioned, right. doing the people's business. That's, that's what I have going on right now. Awesome. So we're gonna, we're gonna see you in office. 
we will see if, uh, if I'm blessed enough to do that, that would be a great thing. What's the next big goal? The one right in front of you right now. Speaking to as many people as I can being able to help them see the possibilities they have, the opportunities they have, the things maybe they're closing their eyes to not just potential in themselves, but potential in others, whether it's, helping someone know that they can be mentored at a situation or can rise to a different level or giving the mentor the aspirations they need to help someone pull themselves out of a situation. Uh, those are the things that I, I get really fired up about right now. Cool. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Okay. How old are you? That's not the hard question. <laughs> the, the hard question is the one I'm going to ask right after. That is a hard one. Uh, <laughs> do some math. Um, 35. Okay. I figured I, did, I was doing the math. I had you out there too. Finish this sentence. Okay. The biggest mistake I've made as a leader is. Not being deliberate from the start. It was an accident that I had the effects I did early on where I had people coming up to me and they're like, you inspired me to do this with my life, go to this school, go to school, join the military, get out of the military and pursue something else. And I wonder how much of a greater impact I've had, I could have had from the start. If I realized that people were watching me in that way. And if I had enough faith in myself from the beginning. Well, I'm here to tell you that I think that, uh, from my experience, I'm 56 and, you know, I haven't had the experiences you've had, but to say I'm grateful for the mistakes I've made is kind of a weird way to put it, but in a way I am, I think I'm a better father, husband, Christian podcaster, leader, whatever, fill in the gap because of the mistakes I've made. Had those mistakes been successful, I wouldn't learn the lesson. Yes. So my advice is be grateful for those mistakes because Absolutely. they probably turned you into who you are more than had those been successes. So Absolutely, seen, I agree. You know, I know it's hard. You know, we want to go back and erase things that we did that maybe not have been the best things in the world, but uh, they are learning experiences. All right. So there's a young CEO who's 35 years old, who's running a family business for the first time and has been watching mom or dad run the company and now really wants to put his or her stamp on the business. If you were sitting down, and I know it's a generic question because you got to know more specifics to really give advice, but generically, what would you tell that person your age that is going into leadership for the first time? You've got 15, 20 years of leadership experience under your belt. He's, he's going into it today on day one. Yeah. Um, don't change things until you know why they were there in the first place. Mm, awesome. The good thing about a fresh set of eyes is that you see so many things that can maybe be better for whatever reason. You can improve things and that's great. The bad thing about a fresh set of eyes is that you're seeing all of these things you wanna change, but you don't maybe necessarily know all of the reasons why they were that way. And it's a good question to ask whenever you're given the ability, why is it done this way? Is it because this was tried before and it didn't work for this reason? Doesn't mean you can't do it, but know why it wasn't done that way, why it failed or why it never got off the ground just so that you know what to expect. You never want to be that person to come in and just wreck 
what someone's built where it just creates this animosity now oh here's the new blood coming in and he mm. just thinks he knows how to run everything right. and oh i could have told him that that was the wrong thing to do well you know what yeah they should have that attitude if you didn't actually ask those questions so get to know the people that were there whenever i had an organization in the army that I was coming into these organizations that have been there for over 100 years yeah i need to know yeah things are going to change but i need to understand what the culture is before i get there because i'm just not going to spin it all on its head day one unless i really have to for some weird ex external reason that's beyond the scope of this question right now yeah in most cases you have some time to figure out why things are done and then deliberately do them the right way with the people that are already there backing you up yeah awesome Chance to give a shout out to the people around you. We say Jim Rohn said we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Who's your circle? My circle. Some people that are supporting me very much right now are a uh, retired Senator Brock and his wife, Sandy. Great people. Uh, Mr. Barry Williams and his son, Barry Williams. <laughs> um, and a ambassador, Doug Holiday, CEO of Path North. These are people that I met them at a very low point in my life when I was getting out of the military and I, I was feeling sorry for myself in a lot of ways. And instead of just turning a blind eye to what was happening, they saw all the other potential in me like others had in the past. And they were those people that raised me up. And I'm, I'm thankful for that influence that they have given me in my life and just being that they waited for me to get right. And then they were there to continue to push me in that right direction where I'm here now. So I'm really thankful for that. Tell us about Path North. For those Path North, yeah, Path North is an organization that uh, Mr. Doug Holiday, Ambassador Doug Holiday is the CEO over, where this isn't their mission statement, but this is how I describe it. This is an organization with very influential people CEOs, politicians, entertainers that have the ability to change the world. And they're coming into this organization to stay grounded where these remarkable people are inviting someone like me into their midst to be like, hey, tell us what was important to you and how you got to where you were and asking those questions about what success is to me in that. Um, why are you gonna ask it? kid from the streets of New York City, New York City, what success is to him when you're these people, because they've, they've kind of realized that they need to, it's almost a way for them to stay connected in touch and grounded. And I really admire that about the individuals in this group. Your supervisor is in the military calls you the closer. Why? <laughs> I know that's their label for you. So for you to say why, I know not that you're going to brag about yourself, but I'm curious why you think you were called the closer. As one of my, uh, as one of my leaders put it, when, when there was some type of, I didn't go into organizations or sections, units that were always doing well. Um, in my command, that was a unit that was doing well, great. But in my other ones, sometimes there was something that was weird about it. And I would get brought in where others had maybe failed or not done as well to almost revamp things. Um, and it was usually a tight timeline. Everything is on a clock, especially in the military. And I would quickly come in, make those changes that I needed to be again, using the help of those that were there before or gaining some outside experience and perspective. And we got the job done. 
And when it came to missions that had to be conducted, whether in the aircraft or out, if it was a hard mission, if it was something that, you know, others couldn't get this done, hey, bring in at that time, Captain Gangram and he'll, he'll steal the deal. Cool. It's a good reputation to have. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. Yeah. It became... I wore that one as a badge of honor at the yeah, end. I would think, I yeah, you've got you got several medals of honor that you've earned through your military service, but to have your peers and your and your supervisors call you the closer and the reason why that's that's pretty powerful. So, I I don't want this time to end. I hope we have a part two. I want to respect your time. I'd like to ask you a couple final questions before we close up, and then I have one that I ask all my guests at the end. Let's stay out of politics for a minute. Okay, I know that's that's an aspiration, and that's kind of where you know you're you're surrounded by right now. Can you name a leader, living or dead, that comes to mind, famous, so that my listeners can can tie you to that person? What is it about that person? Who is it, and what is it about that person that you admire and try to emulate in your life? The answer may sound political, but it's not. Colin Powell. Okay. And this is a man who look at his early life. This man did so much early on at a time where it definitely wasn't cool to be black. And what he was doing, he could have easily gone into a shell and been like, all right, I'm not going to ruffle feathers the wrong way. But he always stayed true to himself. The, I mean, from the time he was in high school, when he was going to college, all of these things, when he was coming in the military, were against him. But he didn't listen to all the naysayers. Yeah. He continued to forge forward and get through all that. And even when people were saying, oh, this isn't the norm, that is the norm, he decided he was going to rewrite what those norms were in that book. And that's that's the one that comes to mind for me. That's excellent. I love that. I love that a lot. So thank you for that. That's a, that's a great non-political answer using a political um, persona. So that's really cool. All right. So as I start to wrap up, uh, well, first of all, how do people get in touch with you? I, I I had a, I've had a lot of ideas of areas where people I want to introduce you to as a result of this conversation, um, events that I do where I want to bring you in. I want to talk to you about that, you know, off air, you know, when we have a chance to follow up. But if somebody listening or watching today is inspired to reach out to you to get you to zoom around the world, as you put it earlier, because that means something different now. You used to zoom around in that chopper behind you. Now you yeah. zoom around sitting in the seat where you are. Um, how do they get in touch with you? And what's the, what's, the, what's the best thing that you think you can bring to a company or a group of leaders right now? Great question, Ed. Thank you for that. Uh, my website is the easiest way to get in touch with me, geraldgangram.com. You'll find all my contact information on there. You can easily email or call me and I can immediately get to work helping your organization by setting up a time to talk to them. And the way I do that is by getting to know your organization where it isn't just, hey, let me give you a answer for this X organization. It becomes, no, your organization, when I get the more information I have, the more I can tailor something to, whether it's talking about, you know, we've talked a little bit about mentorship, but there's more about resilience. There's more about even my leadership philosophy and my command philosophy that can help guide some businesses, um, especially whether it's a lot of corporate businesses that, that, that a lot of people fall under, um, where you have so many people in so many directions. So those are the things that I offer right now. And geraldgangram.com is the easiest way to get there. 
what's in your heart, what would you say right now? It'll all work out in the end. If it hasn't worked out yet, it's not the end. Just keep going.